everyone. Welcome to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we explore what our scriptures have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the conditions under which we are now living. This week and for the next few weeks, we'll be focusing on what these post-Easter scriptures have to say to us right now in this time of pandemic about who we are meant to become for each other. How might we shape out of this global crisis a more just, equitable, and compassionate future? Something lush and juicy and thriving, something that we might actually want to live in. What does resurrection look like now when the Good Friday crucifixions are right in our faces? But before I jump in, I should say a few words about who I am and who we are. My name is Nicola Torbett. I use she and her pronouns. I'm a white, working-class, queer settler situated on unceded Ohlone land in the city now known as Oakland, California, a historical and present-day movement town where there are all kinds of opportunities to get into holy trouble. I am deeply indebted to the long tradition of Black, Indigenous, and Asian American activism in this place. I'm also shaped by and indebted to my church community, First Congregational Church of Oakland, and my Christian Direct Action Affinity Group, Second Acts. After taking a little break to focus on some movement stuff, I'm really happy to be back as a contributor to The Word is Resistance. As you may know, our podcast is a project of showing up for racial justice, or SURGE, and specifically SURGE Faith. It's designed to be a resource for organizing white communities into the struggle against racism and white supremacy. I'm honored and quite a bit humbled to be speaking with you in this very strange, scary, and I think pregnant time. I hope that whoever you are and wherever you are listening today, you and the people you love are healthy and safe. I recognize that that might not be true for you. So I want to say that your grief in this time and in all times is holy. Grief, as Martine Prechtel reminds us, is deeply intertwined with praise. We can't grieve what we haven't loved. If you're feeling fear and anxiety or anger or even rage in this moment, that too is holy. It's a kind of prayer, right? Whatever you are feeling right now, it is welcome here. It's a fine starting place. As for myself, I've been feeling a whole bunch of things. It took me a long time to accept how big a deal this virus was going to be. I remember having my usual coffee date with my friend Dave Belden on Friday, March 13th. Dave and I meet every second Friday at a large Berkeley cafe with a gorgeous sunny patio full of beautiful succulents and quirky, strange sculptures. On any ordinary day, the place is alive with people. It's a great place to soak up some sun while catching up with friends, and there are students studying or writing papers, activists scheming, novelists plotting, theologians, both professional and amateur, theologizing. You get the picture. But on this Friday, the place was practically empty, and I remember worrying as we got up to leave whether they were going to be able to stay open with so little business. And if they were nearly deserted, what about all my other haunts? 
you have to understand, I spend hours and hours every week in cafes, or I did. I live with two wonderful housemates in a very tiny house with very little private space. So all my writing, journaling, musing, thinking, podcast planning, revolutionary scheming happens in cafes. I could not imagine how I would survive without them. So I was just a wee bit distraught. Yep, you heard it here. Nicola's first strong reaction to the coronavirus crisis was panic about her cafe life. Hashtag first world problems. Hashtag bougie working class girl. Hashtag I had no idea. Of course, now all the cafes, restaurants, bars, gyms, churches, and other gathering places have all been shut down, along with many beaches and parks. And we're about a month into sheltering in place. So my feelings have moved on. And like many others, my emotions cycle through all kinds of things. Fear for people I love. So much fear. Anxiety about the future. Anger at the mishandling of this moment by people in power. Fear about how those people are going to exploit this moment. Confusion about what is really happening. And actually, a fair amount of hope and curiosity. There are some exciting things happening, at least here in California, and I think also in other places, we've seen that it actually is possible to do some of the things we have been told over and over are impossible. It is possible to protect renters and homeowners from losing their housing, at least for a time. It is possible to house unhoused people, to free at least some prisoners and immigrant detainees, to extend sick leave benefits to more people. Worldwide, we have seen that it is possible to reduce carbon emissions something like 30% in a matter of days. And we are witnessing how quickly the natural world responds, with marine life showing up where it has not been for decades, wild deer nosing through shuttered towns in Sri Lanka and Japan. Really, Google it. And a peacock strutting across a usually bustling boulevard in Dubai. Here in Oakland, wild turkeys have taken over elementary school playgrounds. So there are signs of resurrection all around. But I'm wary of my urge to focus exclusively on resurrection when it means forgetting or ignoring the reality that people are sick, struggling to breathe, and some are dying. And that in this country, those who are sickest and most likely to die are disproportionately poor Black and Indigenous people, not coincidentally, but because of systematic barriers to health care, social safety nets, healthy food, clean air, and the conditions necessary for social distancing and sheltering in place. Make no mistake, every person struggling to breathe on a ventilator right now is every bit as important to God as Jesus was. So liturgically, we are in Eastertide, and resurrection is happening. But as my co-conspirator Grace Ahern pointed out last week, it is also still very much Good Friday in America. starting to understand more deeply 
that Good Friday and Easter are not so much discrete events or mutually exclusive states, but overlapping realities. And the trick is to hold them both simultaneously in awareness. I've been praying lately for God to increase my capacity to hold all of it, the grief, the terror and pain, and also the irises raising their bold heads in the yard, the beautiful souls distributing food all over the city, the fierce organizing to hashtag free them all from prisons and detention centers. I want to hold it all, despite all my habitual strategies for repressing or numbing the uncomfortable feelings, because I'm sensing there is tremendous latent power in the tension among all these emotions. Power to transform not just what we say, but who we are and how we orient our lives. I mean, it happens in this week's passage from Acts 2. Peter preaches about how the crucified Jesus is actually now the risen Lord and Messiah, and the people, it says, are cut to the heart. And immediately they're like, please tell us, what should we do? And then he tells them to repent, that old-fashioned word, and be baptized. And they do it, I guess, right there and then. When does that ever happen? And scripture says about 3,000 people were added to the church that day. And at that time, joining the church didn't just mean signing the membership book and maybe having a nice reception after worship. It meant throwing your whole lot in with this newfound community. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia, a beautiful word. And it refers to a complete change of mind or heart, a turning away from one life and toward another. This is huge stuff. Later in this same chapter of Acts, we learn that these early church folk suddenly collectivized everything they had and redistributed it according to need. Massive redistribution. Can you imagine? Wouldn't any of us, if we could, give a sermon that would bring about a whole new economic system and a beloved community in which everyone had access to whatever they needed? So I decided to take a look at what Peter was doing here. Here's what I was able to figure out. The first part of the sermon situates the news about Jesus in the context of the Hebrew scriptures, much as we do each week with this podcast, situating the news of the day within our scriptural tradition. Then, in the portion we read this week, Peter lays out a tension between one view of Jesus as convicted, executed criminal, or at best, failed revolutionary, this is the Good Friday perspective, and God's view of Jesus as the salvation of a whole people, the Easter perspective, sitting with the tension. And we have to talk about it. Peter did a little more than that. The tension with which Peter left the people was the tension between how God treated Jesus and how the people allegedly did. What he says, to be precise, is this. Therefore, let the whole house of Israel uh-oh, know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Hold up. We got to slow down here. How did the people, these people, Peter's listeners, who were pilgrims in town for the religious holiday of Shavuot, treat Jesus? Do they even know him? Maybe, but likely not. These were religious pilgrims from all over, 
most of whom would never have encountered a peasant rabbi from Nazareth. Did these people personally turn him over to the authorities? No, that was Judas, and Judas, tragically, is dead of suicide by this time. Did they shout, crucify him, in Pilate's courtyard? Maybe some of them, but probably many were not even in Jerusalem that day, 50 days earlier. Who can afford to make two trips to Jerusalem for religious holidays that fall within two months of each other? So Peter is doing something pretty strange here, if we're going to believe the writer of Acts. He's accusing the house of Israel, in other words, Jews, which remember were his own people, of killing Jesus. The legacy of these words in a tragic, ironic twist have killed Jesus over and over again, providing justification for centuries of murder of and discrimination against Jewish people, God's own people, under the pretense that the Jews, as if there were one homogenous category of Jewish people, killed Jesus. This is patently untrue. Crucifixion was never carried out by Jews. Crucifixion was a Roman means of social control, designed to make an example of oppressed people, in this case Jews, who were perceived as freedom fighters. Jews did not kill Jesus. Roman colonizers did. Why does Peter claim otherwise here? We don't really know. Some commentators think he is deliberately shifting blame in order to appease the Romans and prevent more violence against the people. Others emphasize that Peter himself denied Jesus three times and has no doubt been wrestling with his own complicity, which here he broadens to his people as a whole. Peter did not kill Jesus by any stretch of the imagination, but he did forego an opportunity to stand in solidarity with him because he was scared. Still another group of interpreters, probably the largest group, point to the role of the Jewish authorities in collaborating with Rome arguing that they acted to preserve the status quo from which they were receiving some benefits, rather than side with Jesus, who posed a threat to that status quo. As a Gentile and a white American, I don't think I have any moral authority to comment on those decisions, Peter's or the high priest's or even Judas's, because I do not stand in their shoes. I am not a part of a colonized people, at least not as a primary identity, though we could certainly talk about how poor and even middle-class white people are colonized by an ideology that serves the interest of the 1%. But what I for sure can comment on, what I actually must grapple with, is my own position within this story. No doubt I am aligned with the colonizing force. I benefit directly from the colonization of this native land, and the crucifixion of numberless slaughtered and enslaved Jesuses, as well as more recent black, brown, and indigenous Jesuses. When I hear about another crucifixion, like, say, Stephen Taylor, a black man killed by police in nearby San Leandro this week, I have every reason to be cut to the heart. Of course, that is not always how we white folks react, is it? In white America 2020, I'm afraid white people would hear a sermon like Peter's, one that suggests that they crucified Jesus or Stephen Taylor or Mike Brown or Sandra Bland 
or a migrant man who died in border patrol custody, or an entire tribe of indigenous people in Brazil whose, hand, whose land was torched to make way for palm oil plantations, and we would immediately storm off or stay and argue about how our ancestors weren't even here during slavery, or how we gave money once to that GoFundMe for a farm worker family, or how hard we have worked for what we have. Robin D'Angelo calls this reaction white fragility, which she defines as a state in which even a minimum amount of racial stress becomes intolerable, triggering a range of defensive moves including the outward display of emotions such as anger, fear, and guilt, and behaviors such as argumentation, silence, and leaving the stress-inducing situation. See, unlike Peter, who came face-to-face with the resurrected man that he himself had betrayed, that's the story Grace told last week, white Americans are insulated from the people and non-human beings on whose sufferings our lives are predicated. We don't have to know about the crucifixions, and we don't want to know. And in fact, we will punish anyone who tries to make us know. So strong is our desire to believe in our own innocence. We get to be oblivious. We get to keep living the same old way, no matter who it harms. Even those of us with a degree of consciousness about the crucifixions that are happening find it very difficult to step outside the systems that are doing the crucifying. Around the country this week, armed white people are rallying at state houses, demanding that the states reopen the economy, no matter who it harms. I can only assume that none of their friends or family members has died. Because we do not have to witness the crucifixions, and we discredit the reports of those who do, white Americans just keep doing what we do and doing it faster and with more efficiency all the time. And sometimes we take up weapons to defend our right to keep doing it. Except that now the crucifixions are happening closer to home. Now some of us are having to drive our own loved ones to the emergency room. Now we are standing outside nursing homes, unable to visit our own dying parents. Don't get me wrong, this virus is no great equalizer. Black people and other people of color are still dying faster as a result of the conditions we have created. But we can't as easily look away. As my friend and womanist theologian Zan West said recently in a Bible study at our church, the virus is making the invisible visible. And a lot of us have a whole lot more time on our hands to sit here and think about what we have done, not to mention our powerlessness to undo it. It's as if everyone together has been given a long time out. We have time to sit with attention. Will we, will we repent, as Peter suggests? Will we experience metanoia? a turning away from one kind of life and toward another? Could it be that the virus will force us to cultivate some resilience, some capacity for grief and lament, as well as authentic praise? I can't help but wonder if that might be the antidote to white fragility. Please don't get me wrong. I don't believe that God sent the virus here to punish us. The God I know and love and try to serve would never will suffering. 
But our actions do have consequences, and our insistence on pushing further and further into the few remaining wild places on this planet without regard for the indigenous people who have warned against it many times over may have brought us this virus. As Penawapskik writer Sherry Mitchell said in a recent podcast, if we don't listen to the virus, there are more powerful teachers coming behind it. If ever there were time for repentance. The cafe life may be the least of what I have to give up, what we have to give up in this time. If indeed this pandemic is a portal, as novelist Arundhati Roy has suggested in an essay that has now itself gone viral. She writes, Whatever it is, coronavirus has made the mighty kneel and brought the world to a halt like nothing else could. Our minds are still racing back and forth, longing for a return to normality, trying to stitch our future to our past, and refusing to acknowledge the rupture. But the rupture exists. And in the midst of this terrible despair, it offers us a chance to rethink the doomsday machine we have built for ourselves. Nothing could be worse than a return to normality. Historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, our databanks and dead ideas, our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through it lightly, with little luggage, ready to imagine another world, and ready to fight for it. That's Arundhati Roy in The Pandemic is a Portal. In this time, I find myself circling and circling around something my first pastor, Reverend Lenise Pinkard, once said that I don't think I really understood at the time. She said, The life for which you have been so carefully prepared is being taken away from you by the grace of God. Thanks be to God. It could be that God is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves, as we say in recovery programs. I don't know. But when I sit and I try to hold all the grief and horror of these deaths with the opportunity that we are somehow impossibly being given to reimagine how to live in and with this world, an opportunity that comes without having done much of anything to deserve it, when I can somehow hold the tension of all of that, I can hardly bear the goodness of God. Friends, we are being called into a free fall of repentance, hands wide open, ready to release whatever cannot come with us into this new world. A huge part of what needs to be released, I think, is wealth. This is the time to move money 
from those who have more than enough to those who don't have what they need. There are any number of projects happening all over the country, local to where you are, where you can donate to get cash, gift cards, and supplies into the hands of people who otherwise would have no way of accessing those things. I'll put a link to a list of mutual aid projects in the transcript. Look for projects that are clear about centering the needs of Black and Indigenous people, migrants, people with disabilities, and queer and trans people of color. And in these days of uncertainty and horrific violence, we need to be practicing interdependence, caring for our community's basic needs, and we need to be organizing to shift the structural injustices that are so evident in this moment. Surge is doing just that. Please consider donating to Surge in these times. Right now, we're splitting donations with our partner organization, Jews for Racial Justice, or JFREG. You can donate online at bit.ly backslash JFREG Surge. I'll also put that donation link in the transcript. I wonder, can you redistribute your stimulus check to some of these efforts? And then can you invite five of your friends to do the same? Beyond this redistribution, I urge you to get as quiet as you can in your spirit at least once a day. I am noticing in myself and some of my white friends a desire to sort of scurry around, trying to do the most in this moment. And that feels to me like a way not to have the feelings we actually need to have. Remember, the discomfort is where the power is. The tension is where the power is. If you relate to this desire to take on too much, you are not alone. I'm trying to counter that impulse in myself by remembering that I am part of something larger, that the future doesn't actually depend solely on me exercising my agency, and that my confusion about that is white supremacy operating in me. And finally, that as Adrian Marie Brown said in Emergent Strategy, small is all. I've been praying every day to be led to the small actions that will move me and us just a little closer to the world we imagine. And I've been praying for help in letting that be enough. I feel deep in my spirit that this is a time for slowing down, for listening, for getting reacquainted with our own bodies and what they need, and for cultivating strong relationships. At our house, we are planting vegetables and garden beds that we will share with our neighbors. And we're doing our best to do it slowly making decisions together with our neighbors rather than rushing forward on our own. What are you hearing in this time? How are you practicing sitting with attention? How are you leaning into metanoia? We would love to hear your thoughts on this episode or anything you'd like to share about your own efforts to build up a new world in this strange time. You can find us on our SoundCloud page or on Facebook at Surge Faith. Let's be in this together. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. Transcripts are available on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. You can read more of my musings at, Word, at my WordPress site, which is called The Longing is the Compass. Be sure to tune in next week to hear a resistance word from Reverend Ann Dunlap, as we continue to explore who we're meant to be to each other in these times. 
Finally, I want to thank our sound editor for this week, Maxwell Pearl. Max, you rock. That's it for now, friends. So many blessings to you for good health, deep transformation, and loving connection as we build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett. Yeah.